All right. Well, shalom and welcome. This is the uh, 20 questions live stream where I take your questions from the live chat, at least 19 of them, the first one I have ready for you. But the rest come right from you guys in the live chat, trying to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. That is, I'm going to try and take whatever question you ask, and at least to the best of my limited ability, I'm going to give you some biblical direction or at least point to the scripture in the best way I can so that as Christians, well, hopefully you will become Christian. If you're not, that's that would be the ultimate goal. But as a Christian, you will learn to be more like radically Christian, more solidly biblical in the way that you think and process things. We are just constantly having our minds renewed as we get into God's word and as we follow what he says. So question number one is uh, from JN. And it's about the prodigal son. And I don't know if you've ever read the prodigal son story and just totally forgot about the older brother, but I think most people do. <laughs> so this is kind of about that. So JN says, can you please teach us about the parable of the prodigal son, specifically focusing on the obedient son who stays in his father's house and ends up resenting his prodigal brother? It seems like there's no real benefit to being the obedient son in that situation. Am I missing cultural context that would enhance my understanding of this parable? And, um, I, 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 the reason why I smile, I get excited about certain questions is because, Jay, and you're asking a question that I think is so relevant for so many people. The prodigal son is probably the, the parable that I think is taken out of context the most when it, when you, you know, it shouldn't be. <laughs> um, but the older son is the thing that's there to, to help put things back in context for us. It's like the older son is part of the parable for an important reason. So let's read the parable together and do a little mini Bible study before we launch into the other questions we have for today. So, um, Jesus is speaking and he said, there was a, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Um, I didn't scroll down like I intended to. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Okay, there we are. Um, yeah, okay, in that country, right here, verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fee his fields to feed pigs, which is, of course, the worst, especially in, in a Jewish mindset. Like, he's literally, they're unclean animals. And, and like, even in Israel today, if you have a pig farm, it has to be it, within the borders of Israel. I think there's like one pig farm at least years ago when I heard this. And they have to keep the pigs off the ground. Like they can't touch the ground, the land of Israel, right? And he's feeding pigs. Um, they're, they're elevated. They don't fly. They're not flying pigs. They're, they're just elevated off the ground with platforms. Um, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, repentance. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, realizes his unworthiness. Treat me as one of your, your hired servants. He's just looking for a job. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it seems like the father just cut him off before he could say the rest. Hey, can I just be a hired servant? But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this, my son was dead and, and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. You, you know, you'd think that would be the end of the parable, but no, there's more. The older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things mean meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, trying to invite him in. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, this son of yours came, you could feel the animosity in just the way he third persons him, right? Like this son of yours. It's like fourth person almost. Um, who has, not, not literally, right? I'm just making a point. Uh, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so we're focusing here on the older brother, right? You know the story of the prodigal son. It's, it's basically saying God loves people who are far from him and wants them, desperately wants them to come. He will run and meet them and kiss them if they'll come humbly, repentant, realizing they're not worthy, and just be embracing his grace, saying, I just want a place in your house, Lord. I just want to live in your home. Um, and he calls you child. Okay, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. But what's up with the older brother? For this, we're going to need to back up a little bit and get even more scripture because thinking biblically requires actually reading the Bible. I know you already knew that. And um, the whole chapter, Luke 15, is one unit. This is one unit. And the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son is one of three parables Jesus tells in response to what happens in verses 1 and 2. So let's walk through this really super quickly. Here's my short version of a Bible study on Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Can I share with you short version, right? Younger brother, who squandered all this stuff but is being brought back in, tax collectors and sinners. The older brother in the story, who was faithful, at least sees himself as faithful, right? And who's jealous and upset, that's the Pharisees and the scribes. They don't like that Jesus is eating with sinners and, and, and feasting with them. They don't like that. He's receiving them. Now, some people take this to mean Jesus was partying with sinners. Um, no, no, it was, it was relationally. He embraced them, though he did require repentance because Christ taught repentance. So it's not like go and sin some more. He said go and sin no more, right? But he is, he's welcoming them in, and the Pharisees and scribes are like, they're not worthy. So they were jealous. So he tells them three parables. The first two parables are kind of like the prep it's like it's like jab jab and then punch right the first two parables are like a jab jab the third parable the prodigal son is like the haymaker it's like he comes in with the with the hook the uppercut um so here's the first jab um, so he told and, and he, not to punch them so much as punch their bad attitudes i guess so he told them this parable what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it and when he has found it he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Because like, they're already in the kingdom. I'm more excited about you getting saved than I am just the good things you do after you're saved. Okay, Because you're now in the kingdom. You're saved. This is, this is a big moment. Um, 
so he's just tapping into to get past their defenses a little bit he uses the analogy i think of a sheep and he's like hey you'd be happy to leave your normal sheep to go find the one that was lost and bring it back you'd, you'd be re you'd rejoice over this and so here's here's me obviously here's me here's me reaching out to the lost and here's you com complaining about that then we have the lost coin verses 8 through 10 another parable another jab or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it. And this is, of course, pre-recent pre inflation, so silver coins are worth a lot more. And when she, she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the theme in these parables, you know all three of them now, is there's something that's lost, and the extra joy and effort that you have to bring back the lost is justified just as is with a sheep, so it is with a coin, so it is with a person, a son. So the parable, parable of the prodigal son is in this context. God sees the sinners who come home as his beloved children. He welcomes them, he rejoices, he's excited about this. Here are some things that I did not previously notice about the prodigal son. Actually, I don't think I noticed this till today. I was kind of going over it, preparing for this one question, the first question. And that is that the father divided the, the stuff between both sons. So there's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Meaning that both sons received their inheritance. And then for some length of time, one son squandered his and the other one stayed faithful with it. Right? He's already got his inheritance, but he's like, yeah, but dad, I want to stay with you. I want to live in your house. I'm going to still serve it here you know, as your son. He is actually a good son. Not many days later, you know, the younger son becomes a, a total loser. And um, verses 21 through 24, we get a little more details that might help us answer your question. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you, uh, against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate. This is, this is not him gaining his inheritance back. The inheritance is gone. Here's the context you need to know. The younger son, to my understanding here, is only being brought back into the family. It's as though he was dead, right? Verse 24, and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. I didn't have my son. He was gone. He was dead to me. Now he has brought back. He is in the family. So the ring and the, and the robe and the shoes and the calf are all a way of saying, son, I don't bring you in as a, as a, as a hired servant. I bring you in as my child. You don't have the inheritance, you squandered that, but you do have a place among our family, right? You're still, you're in the family and you will be taken care of. That's, that's what I think is being said here. You're in the family, but not the inheritance. Now, the older son, he actually does have the inheritance. And we get this in verses 29 through 32. Here's the, the difference between them. He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And then he responds to him, son, you are always with me and that, and all that is mine is yours. Remember the father split the inheritance between two sons. One son squandered it all. And now the father says to the older son, all that I have is yours. All the inheritance is his. So that's the benefit of the older son, of the one who's faithful to God for many years the, that, that one has the benefit of all the fruit of their of their um, their treasures in heaven. What what Paul later talks about in First Corinthians, he talks about the treasures in heaven, and they rejoice over that. Like I I have my treasures in heaven, but you know what's 
more glorious than treasures in heaven is just being in heaven, right? It's just being the son of God who is brought into the kingdom of God at all. And so the thief on the cross is an example of a guy who probably goes to heaven with little to no treasure of, of in the sense of um, treasures in heaven, like first Corinthians discusses where it's, it's just about blessings, right? But he still in fully enters into heaven. He still has a place in the family and belongs there and dwells there. And so, um, the, the sad part about the parable and where it comes back to the Pharisees is that the older brother, we never know if he actually goes in. He comes out from the field, he hears about the party, and he refuses to go in. The father comes out and compels him, come in. Come in and celebrate with me. This is right. Look, all you have all that stuff, but rejoice over your brother. You just don't love your brother is the problem. You don't forgive him for what he's done. You don't want him to be experiencing the joy of, of, of being brought back into the family. Like You want him to be punished, and you're jealous. And so the older brother is, 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 yeah, he seems like a good guy in a lot of ways, but he's also perhaps proud and arrogant. I mean, the, the, the humble one is the prodigal one here. And so for those who have served God well, at least they think they serve God well in their lives. The question when they're confronted with people being freely forgiven by God's grace, do they rejoice showing their own humility and their own love for others? Or are they like, ooh, I don't like that, showing their own arrogance and perhaps meaning that they're outside, not inside. They're sitting outside, not not part of the celebration. So, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing. All right, let's go to question number two. So, um, and here it is. Question number two comes from Melissa Berry, very old, longtime friend of mine. In Psalm six five, Melissa, is this how hard it is to get get a hold of me that <laughs> you? She's like, I'll just ask you on your Friday thing. <laughs> That's how hard it is for people to get a hold of me now. I'm sorry, everyone. In Psalm 6, 5, David asks God to spare his life because for in death, there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. Does David not have belief or understanding of heaven at this point in his life? Great question. I'll offer you my my thoughts on this. And I will say first to you guys know, um, if you go to like a typical church and just any normal average Christian who just opens their Bible and reads it, they think that David knows about heaven. David understands those things, you know, but if you start moving into like a scholarship and some of the more hoity-toity circles of things, you're going to find that a lot of these like high up people and many of them who say they're Christian, not all, but many of them who say they're Christian, they're going to say that in the Old Testament, the idea of the of of the resurrection and of eternal life just doesn't occur until much, much later. Now, I think that's not true. I think this is a persistent false belief that is amongst even many scholars. I wanted I one day want to do a whole video on this topic, but it's on the list of 7,000 videos I want to do. It's going to take me 312 years to do them. So we'll see. But here's one of the verses that comes up. So Psalm 6, 5, for in death, there's no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. Um, the, um, the context that I see, I'm trying to think how long I want to spend on one, uh, the, this question here. So forgive me for stuttering as I process how to answer it. But the context I see is that, um, in death, there's no remembrance of you and Sheol who will give you praise is not to say, um, those who die, uh, there's no future like experience of life for them. There's no future like time where they'll praise God or where they'll remember God or something like that. I think what he's saying is um, there is great benefit to me being alive because as, as a living person, I can be in the world having an impact in others as I proclaim the truths of who God is. I bring remembrance and give praise 
So I'm bringing up who God is and his glories and his goodness. I will proclaim that. This is kind of like uh, when we get to Psalm 53, where David talks about how he wants to be forgiven. And he's like, God, heal the bones you've broken. And then I will rejoice in the assembly. He's like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to proclaim your goodness to others. Uh, David saw that it was just genuinely a good thing to go and tell others about how good God is. And if he dies, he can't do that. He's saying, heal me from my affliction because not only will I be alive, but I will then be proclaiming your praises about how you healed me from my affliction and that will bring you glory. I think that's what he's saying. Um, now, the three interpretations of what's going on in Sheol are um, they had no awareness of a, of a resurrection. And so that's why he says there's no remembrance. Sheol's just like a, a disembodied state where you're like, there's no awareness of any kind and that's permanent. Another one is, oh, some people say Sheol was so temporarily... Um, lack of awareness, but then there was a future resurrection that they were talking about. And this is kind of like that soul sleep theory some people have. Others will say, no, no, Sheol was simply, you're not bringing remembrance in the, in the world of the living. Like the main focus is the world of the living. And when you're in Sheol, you're in this temporary holding place waiting on the resurrection. And so, and this is my view. So you can't do anything like except wait. And so you can't bring remembrance to God in a positive way that impacts the world. That would be my understanding. Oh, there's so much more I'd like to say about that, but we'll go to the next question. I hope that, that that's helped you out, Melissa. Uh, Daphne E. says, have you heard of a movement called the Last Reformation started by Torben Sondergaard in Denmark? Now he's based in the U.S., but it has grown worldwide. Would you consider it a cult? You know what, Daphne? For literally years, people have been asking me about to look into the Last Reformation and Torben Sondergaard, and I haven't spent, I'm sorry to say, I haven't spent any time on it yet. I just want to say like, you know, you bringing this question, it tells me like, I know this is relevant. I've seen too many requests come in to talk about it that I, I know I should probably spend some time on it. I'm currently just really struggling. I mean, working till 1 a.m. last night, just trying to prepare for the next women in ministry study. And that's again, why I'm not responding to that many text messages, even in my own life. So I apologize for having not covered something that is super important. I don't know anything about it currently, but I will raise up on my radar an awareness of it and I'll try to get to it when I can. So I'm sorry, you guys, I don't have more to say on that right now. Um, the way I would approach those things, if, you know, if I was just, if, if I recommend for you to approach it is um, try to ignore the fluff of the movement and try to look at how they handle scripture. And okay, they use this verse and they interpret it this way. Let me go read that verse in context and you just, you slow way down. You just look at the claims. They use this verse, they interpret it that way. Let me slow down. Let me read the verse in context. Let me compare their claims, their conclusions of the verse to what I see here. And that will get you very far. Um, but I haven't looked into it. Yet. Going to number four. Uh, Fiza Diva says, Hi, Pastor Mike. The devil, according to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, disguises as an angel of light, but can't fight against himself. Mark three twenty four, or his kingdom won't stand. What if in disguising he condemns himself? Okay, let me let me go to these two verses and then we'll we'll take your your hypothetical and consider it. So 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Um, so Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This is such an interesting an interesting thing. Um, I would love to spend a whole research project on that one topic. Uh, but Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And the, and the point here is, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, 
their ends will correspond to their deeds. Here it's about false teachers and false apostles, deceitful workmen. These are people pretending to be Christian leaders. I mean, they are leaders in Christianity, but they're pretending that they're representing Christ well, but they're actually serving Satan. And um, their end will correspond to their deeds. Their, their wicked deeds will eventually catch up with them. Um, so that's the idea here. Now, you say, oh, oh well, let's go to the other verse as well, which is Mark 3.24. Um, Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house divided against itself, that house cannot stand, uh, cannot be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So why is he saying this? Well, he's not talking about false teachers here. He's talking about casting out demons. So Jesus was casting out demons and the scribes who came from Jerusalem to denounce Jesus, they need to find an explanation, right? Because the people know Christ is a successful exorcist. He casts out demons of people who no one else can. He casts out demons of a demoniac, of a, of a, de a demon-possessed person who walked into the synagogue. It's It's been too public. It has to have an explanation now. And so the scribes come and they say, oh, oh, the way he casts out demons is he's possessed by Beelzebub or Satan, by the prince of demons. That's his power over demons comes from the leader, the leader of the demons, Satan. That's their theory. That's the way they're going to explain Jesus's power. And so he's like, uh, how can Satan cast out Satan? <laughs> so that's the context of Jesus' Jesus's appeal. Satan's not going to go against his own agenda. That's the point. He's not going to fight his own agenda. With false teachers in the other passage, it is Satan's agenda to bring in false teachers. Now for your, for your hypo, so I don't see these as at odds. I see them as part of the same agenda. Um, but you're, your question in the end was, what if in disguising, he condemns himself? What if the person who's a false apostle actually ends up causing harm to Satan's kingdom? I would say they probably will, but it will be inadvertently and not intentionally. And that's the big difference. Satan's not going to cast out Satan intentionally, but he will do things that backfire all the time, just like with the cross. Satan's thinking, this is my greatest victory, right? But it was actually his great defeat. He didn't know it. He was at odds with himself, but not intentionally. He wasn't planning to ruin his own agendas. And um, ultimately, his kingdom will not stand. So, of course, it's, it's going to fail. But Jesus' point was just he's not going to intentionally go against his own agendas. Um, question number five from Stephanie Morse. My husband doesn't believe in God, and our six-year-old has started to notice and is asking why daddy doesn't believe. How should I approach this in a way that's helpful and honors my husband and God? Stephanie, this is a hugely challenging question. And I can only probably give you some counsel and um, take it with a grain of salt because I'm not in your situation. But I'm going to speak as someone who's um, had a little experience with this as doing youth ministry for many years and talking to kids who have parents, one who's Christian, one who's not. I've seen it many times. What I normally see with kids is um, most of the time they will try to find a middle ground between their parents. So they'll say, I'm Christian and I'm atheist. I'm Christian and I'm Mormon. I'm Christian and I'm Buddhist. They'll, they'll often try to find a middle ground because to them, it's the belonging with their parents that is the chief motivator here. So one thing I would want to recommend is not trying to fight your, 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 your daughter identifying, or is it your son? I don't know, your six-year-old. Um, I would say don't, don't fight the relationship 
your kid has with their father. And I'm, I'm obviously wouldn't intentionally do this, but I mean, think about how you talk about these issues so that you don't do it in a way that undermines that relationship or respect that your kid has for their father. That's really important. And hopefully he does the same thing for you. I don't know if he'll do that or not. Um, with your kid, your, your kid's going to be exposed to these things. What I would recommend is focus first on preparing yourself. And this means studying into and learning some apologetics that graciously answer, answer the issues that your husband has about God. When you know you have really solid, thoughtful answers and not just, you're, you're just, you drive me nuts kind of answers, but thoughtful, solid answers, then you can slowly over the years, don't panic over any moment here, over the years, equip your kid with answers to those questions. Not as a way of competing, but as a way of informing. Yeah, daddy thinks this, mommy thinks this because of this reason. And I think that that will hopefully create unity because you don't want to cause division. But if you're not causing it, if it's caused by, even though you're taking every effort to be godly here, if it's caused by your husband, that's not your fault. Um, you just, as much as is possible, it depends on you, live peaceably with all people, Roman says. So we try to do that. So I'd recommend don't you know, avoid the panic thing. If you hear a, a word come out of your kid's mouth that sounds scary, of don't avoid overreacting, reacting in the moment. React like a parent who's thinking, over the next 18 years, how important will this moment be? Not just, am I reacting today? But when you have good, solid answers, so apologetics resources and, and looking into thoughtful explanations for the questions and the challenges, you will grow and you will be able to help your, your child grow. They're thinking, um, another way to do this that's kind of like an end run around some of the topics is developing their critical thinking skills. And so I'd recommend you look in the Foundation Worldview curriculum that Elizabeth Urbanowicz puts together. I I think it's just called Foundation Worldview, the website. Check it out. They have curriculum there that helps educate uh, kids, helps parents educate Christian kids through simple, low time commitment lessons on how to like work through sort of principles that are super important for thinking that become the foundation for having conversations about God. Um, I'll put it that way. I rec recommend you guys check it out. So number six, Joel S. says many Christians use the Lord gives and the Lord takes away from Job 121 to explain difficult things such as the death of a loved one. Is this biblical or is it a misinterpretation of Job? What a great question. Wow. Joel, let's, let's talk about this. If you lose somebody and then someone says to you, here's my explanation of the difficult thing you went through. And they quote Job, the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I just want to point out in Job, this is not an explanation. This is not meant to explain what happened. It's not intended to explain. In fact, Job himself continues the rest of the book not understanding why it happened. So if someone's like, why is this happening? And my answer is, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That is not an explanation. That doesn't mean it's not valuable or important. It's just not the explanation. Do you, I'm trying to be careful with my words here. So when I say the Lord's given as Lord's taken away, what I what I actually hear is I don't hear someone saying it to Job. I hear Job saying it. That's immensely valuable. When Job says the Lord's given as the Lord's taken away, this is him saying, I I trust God's sovereignty and I'm and I choose in my incredible pain, having lost money, having lost property, having lost children, having lost health, right? Uh, or health comes next, I guess. Um, but having lost kids, right? He loses so much. And then he worships God out of pure faith. He's not feeling it. He's not in a high 
you know, heart-filled worship moment. No, he's in the dust and he's choosing to praise God because he thinks God is actually worthy. And his only, in fact, as he falls and fails from all the things he held to in this life <clears throat> and it's, his world falls apart, he falls down and what does he land on? He lands on God is still God. God is still worthy to be worshiped. That's a beautiful thing for Job to say. But, and I hope this is, I hope I can be clear here, but that cannot, that can be a not beautiful thing to say to Job. I want the hurting people to say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's something else for you to say it to a hurting person. When it comes from the one who's hurting, it's, it's their, it's their act of faith to trust and worship God in spite of the suffering they're experiencing. When it comes from someone else, it's an instruction, right? It's an attitude check. Hey, you should bless the Lord. But I think that the best thing Job's friends did when they, when he was suffering like this was they sat with him and didn't say anything. And it was when they opened their mouths that the problems ensued. <clears throat> Avoid the temptation to fix people who are in pain. Be with them. Sit with them. Let them go through some of the roller coasters of that suffering. And when you see an open door to share with them and encourage them, but when you throw things out and it feels like a meme, it feels like a, a meme um, answer to... Uh, the hardship of their lives, then it's it's not the same you saying it to them as 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 them saying it about the Lord. It's just not the same. So th just that my that's my understanding of it. Okay, I think it's consistent. It's not clearly the Bible says don't say this to people. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying there is a difference between you saying it to people and what we read in Job because when 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 I hear it in Job, the, he's it's Job crying out, God gave, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This to me is beautiful and wonderful. I want to see people come to that place, but I can't just tell them to do it um, because um, there's a proverb. Um, let me share it with you guys. If I can find it. Um, yeah, Proverbs 25 verse 20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Singing songs, these are these are meant to be like positive, happy songs, not like a funeral dirge or something. Um, singing songs to someone who has a heavy heart, who's going through great difficulty and hardship, it's like what? Taking off a garment on a cold day. You're trying to subvert my sorrow and take away my sorrow, but what you're doing is you're just exposing me even worse to the cold. Don't sing songs to a heavy heart, right? It's like vinegar on soda. Right? The idea here is that it creates this reaction, this, this bad reaction, this bad chemical reaction. You don't like that. That's not a good thing. At least that's my understanding of vinegar on soda here. This is why the New Testament tells us mourn with those who mourn, not fix those who mourn. Now, I, I don't want to encourage someone who, if they raise their fist to God, how could God allow this? How could he? I'm like, oh, this is dangerous and unhealthy. But I still don't know if that's the right moment for me to tell them it's dangerous and unhealthy because I just recognize People, they're going through stuff. You know, maybe I should sit with them for a time first and um, mourn with those who mourn. Maybe I should just weep with them and not try to fix anything. And so in, in a sense, I feel helpless to help people in these situations where they're suffering and they're struggling so much because I don't have words that are going to fix anything. And so I just sit and grieve with them and that doesn't fix it either. And, but maybe that's the point. Like I'm powerless to fix your broken heart, but I can mourn with you, right? That doesn't fix it, doesn't make it, healed but but I can mourn with you why because I care about you because I because I love you and I'm showing you compassion and um 
So as much as a pastor wants to be able to have like, here's the answer, boom. All right, next. All right, here's your answer, boom, next. Um, this is this this is unresolved. It's unresolved, and the and the, the issue is to trust in God, obviously, and rest in Him, and know that ultimately He is good and He's glorious, and He's promised us greatness in the future. But I won't use those as a way of pulling pulling the the garment off of someone on a cold day. I, I just want to be very careful. So number seven, this comes from uh, Green is great, who says first Easter being saved. Well, congratulations, Green is great. First Easter being saved. You get to celebrate the resurrection, actually believing it. Uh, what a powerful thing. Suggestions for some God-honoring ways to spin Good Friday and Holy Saturday. I'm so excited and want to do what's in my power to feel especially close to Christ. Um, uh, let me tell you something. As a new Christian, I want you to know something. You are especially close to Christ, even when you don't feel it. <laughs> this is, this is, it took me so long to learn this. You are especially close to Christ, even when you don't feel it. When you do feel it, it's wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing to say, I want to feel close to Christ. That's not bad at all. But it's just good to know that you're especially close to Christ, even when you don't feel it. That's a wonderful thing to be aware of. Um, what could you do? What are God honoring things to do? Good Friday, Holy Saturday. I mean, gathering with believers to celebrate the resurrection of Christ is one of the best things you can do. Um, there's many churches have Good Friday services. Um, uh, for for Saturday, I don't know if people have traditions. I guess I never really had any special traditions on Saturday. Usually, you're preparing for Sunday, where you're, we're going to visit multiple families, and we're going to. We, I mean, I used to do Sunday sunrise services for my church, and so for me, I would be getting up at three in the morning. I'm not kidding. And going to the park and setting up and sound checking and doing everything. And then we would do the service and then we would do the park service. Then we would go to the other services in the church. And and then um, I would just be in a coma <laughs> after that. So, But it was still my favorite service of the year. So yeah, um, celebrate with friends and family. For a lot of churches, Easter is a great time to bring a non-believer. Uh, people are just a little, or at least someone who's not not seeming to walk with Christ because people are generally more open on Easter service and many churches are more aware that this is a time to evangelize. Um, so Easter, Christmas, and Mother's Day are the day when everybody brings someone to church. Not Father's Day, you lousy fathers, right? <laughs> Mother's Day, all the moms are like, we're going to church, you know, and um, interesting how that that goes on. Um, but the uh, this is a great day to do evangelism for, for churches, so that might be an opportunity. But yeah, I say just just enjoy, just enjoy knowing that Christ is risen and that you're celebrating that. That uh, one thing that I I think might actually be I like to do it is during this week that's coming, I'll be thinking, okay, for Friday, okay, my understanding is Christ was crucified on Friday, so Friday around this time, Jesus was standing before Pilate. Friday around this time, Jesus was being flogged. Friday around this time, Jesus was being put on the cross. Maybe it was around this time of day, right right around now when the sun's about this port, this part of the sky, you know, from where you're at. Maybe it was around this time of day that, that Jesus uh, was being mocked by the men on the cross with him. And, and maybe a little later, maybe this is when the thief turned and tells, tells him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right? Maybe it was around this time of day that, um, that Christ was actually breathing his last and he was crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pointing us to Psalm 22, the fulfillment that he's the fulfillment of, you know, and he would be in a, being the one who brings the world to Yahweh. Um, 
you know, maybe it was around this time they were taking his body down. That that Nicodemus and and Joseph were were like going and collecting some spices and stuff like that, so they could bury him quickly in Joseph's tomb. Maybe around this day on Saturday, around this time, the disciples were totally in despair. Judas was gone. Uh, he went and hung hang him, hung hung himself. You know, Peter's in despair. Would he even look at the other disciples in the face because he had denied Christ three times? And he was weeping bitter. So what I do is I walk through the events and I think about it, and it, I don't know, it's it's just more relevant to me. You know, waking up early Sunday morning, you're like, huh? By now, by the time I wake up nowadays, um, wow, they they were already at the tomb and had found it empty, and they had told the disciples, and the disciples are like, hey, they're saying Jesus has risen. You know, and Peter and John go to the tomb. It's empty. They haven't seen Jesus yet. And so there's like, was there like this glimmer of hope, but also this like fear that you were just going to be let down? There was this confusion because they all their hopes have been dashed. But then if he has risen, what does it mean? You know, anyway, I think it's good stuff to do. All right. Number eight. Joey has a question. I've been doubting lately, he says, because I know of so many people deconverting after finding apologetics. It makes me question my reasoning at times. What are your thoughts on this? Um, Joey, I think that these things are, um, seasonal and they're cultural. And so, um, when I say that, I say seasonal and cultural, I mean, there's, there's a certain culture we're in that is deconverting. And, um, you say they deconvert after finding apologetics. I'm curious what apologetics they're finding and who, what apologists they're reading and, and probably more importantly, how properly they're able to reason about things and issues because those who can't reason well, who don't reason well on these topics, and I don't just mean with logic, but I also mean with the heart because your heart, I'm going to say this, it's going to sound a little strange, but your heart kind of reasons too, right? Because we don't just think about arguments, we feel about them. And so if your heart is bent from our culture and from our from our the brainwashing of our culture, if your heart's bent away from God and his truth in some way, as you start questioning these issues, one by one, they're all going to be incompatible with your heart that has been shaped by the world. And so you think you're following your logic and reasoning, but you're feeling your way out of Christianity. And I've seen this happen many times with people. I think it's very I think it's very cultural. It's very in our moment right now. We have a we have a um, a generation that is being raised more and more by the influences of the world. And by that, I mean just the influences of popular thinking in the world and that which happens to end up riding on the top of the social media wave. And so that and movies and TV shows, I mean, think about it this way. Like 200 years ago, if you were a Christian and you're raised up in a Christian environment, you see Christian families and you go to church and you see marriage in the context of Christianity and all that kind of thing. And now, the vast majority of the relationships you witness with your own eyes are ungodly and unchristian. And most of them are actually fake ones you've seen online through social media, through um, through movies and TV shows and, and all that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is that our culture is having a bigger, more integrated impact in the way that all humans are, are being raised and learning how to think. Our hearts are being shaped by artificial means. And those means tend to be anti-gospel, anti-Christian. And so many people, they go, I'm just studying apologetics. But when they tell me the reasons they have for rejecting Christianity, it's like, these are hard issues about rising from culture a lot of the time, not not issues um, like, oh, well, God judges people in the flood. How horrible, how could he do that? And you're like, well, because they're evil and God's awesome and holy and right. 
<laughs> what? Oh, I'm so offended by that. But but this isn't your reasoning. This is your heart leading this kind of thing. So um, that being said, um, the number of people deconverting should not matter. It does. It matters. It shouldn't though, right? Like for instance, imagine all your friends became Christians. Does that mean Christianity is true? No, it doesn't. Imagine all your friends become Muslims. Does that mean Islam is true now? No, it, it doesn't. But we tend to go with the crowd. And that's the whole point of actually working through these issues. In my honest, completely open, no, nothing hidden experience, digging into apologetics has made me so much stronger intellectually in my Christian faith. It doesn't help my heart because heart issues are different. But that has made me so much stronger in my Christian faith. My confidence that the Bible is God's inspired word and there's real evidence for it. And when I look at the arguments that people po uh, give to oppose it, I'm like, ah, that doesn't really work for me personally. And and I, I say personally, I don't mean subjectively. I mean, I've looked at the evidence and I think that's bad. And I don't have time to make response videos to everybody on the planet. But but I'm like, yeah, hopefully people can work that out on their own, <laughs> that, that, was, that that was weak. Um, and I think the evidence for the resurrection of Christ is strong. I think the the um, the evidence for so many of these central things in Christianity are super strong. So apologetics seems great to me. But I also know plenty of apologists who aren't very good at it or apologists who compromise the Christian faith and call it apologetics. So, so Joey, maybe find um, good apologetics resources, solid ones, um, and ask yourself this, is your heart really comfortable going against the crowd because it's much easier said than done we all laugh at the idea of well if all your friends jumped off the brooklyn bridge would you too and we all laugh at that well, of course not i'm an independent thinker um and here's us saying i'm an independent thinker because i don't want anyone thinking i'm not an independent thinker because i'm not an independent thinker um, we have to be willing to stand against the crowd for now until we're all in the crowd in heaven yeah god help you joey all right, Kate's online name, Katie's online name says, it seems the only commandment of the 10 that we don't still have to follow is the Sabbath. If it was as important as the other 10, why are they all still upheld without exception and not that one? Um, so, I didn't think, yeah, I won't, I won't go, I was going to think I'd read through the whole 10 commandments and just talk through them with you guys, but it, but I need to move quicker for the sake of today's video and I have tons of studying I got to do today. So um, let me say this. I don't think that we are, we have to follow the Ten Commandments by virtue of them being the Ten Commandments. Let me say that again because I, I, I want it to be clear. I'm not saying that you can have idols, that you don't have to worship God, or that you can dishonor your parents. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying I don't think as Christians we're under the Ten Commandments, specifically these Ten Commandments, by virtue of them being the Ten Commandments. I think those are things, for the most part, God's going to judge all nations for. One of the commandments, though, the Sabbath, it's specifically something he's only ever judged Israel for. Right? God judges Israel on the Sabbath issues so specifically that literally they, they go out of the land for 70 years so that the land can have its rest. So he actually judges the nation of Israel for the Sabbath. I don't know anywhere in any text of Scripture where he judges the Gentile nations for those things. But he does judge, judge them for idolatry. Right? So what you're getting is the idea that the Ten Commandments is specifically Israel. But it does draw from truths, many of which are true all the time. 
We're not under the Ten Commandments by virtue of them being these ten because we're not under the law. But we are still under God's moral truth, which is reflected in the Ten Commandments in many ways. Um, I'd also say all the Ten Commandments, pretty much all of them are reiterated in some way in the New Testament. So they're, at least the topics are mentioned again. And so honoring your parents, that's, that's an, uh, idolatry, that's mentioned specifically, right? Um, worshiping God and having no one before him. All these types of things, they're all listed, don't steal. They're all listed, and the Sabbath in Romans 14 is specifically mentioned, but as something that we have liberty to do what we want with. So I'm just trying to be consistent here. Ten Commandments I'm not under, though there's many true things in there that do apply, just like there are throughout the law. But those things are true, even if they weren't in the law. right? They're true, they're true because they're true, period. Um, but the Sabbath is specifically mentioned as something Christians have liberty on. Read Romans 14 carefully, and I think that will answer that question for you. Yeah. All right, number 10, Ali Burkholder says, I'm afraid our church is being unknowingly influenced by progressivism. For example, people love the podcast, The Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns. Should we be worried? How do I share my concerns? Um, Ali, I'd be deeply concerned about that, and I, I've taken some heat for mentioning that Pete Enns and Greg Boyd are on the progressive spectrum. Um, that, but, but I think they are. But that's also because I don't define progressive Christianity as apostasy. But it, it's open to apostasy. It's not orthodox either. It's just not about Jesus. And so you can have someone like, say, Greg Boyd, who I think has an orthodox view of Jesus and, and, and his resurrection. He's defended the resurrection of Christ. And I can say, hey, you're kind of in this progressive umbrella in the sense that what you're teaching about the Bible it fits perfectly with progressive needs to reform and reimagine and reinvent how we look at scripture. Basically, we have to come up with a way of disagreeing with lots of the Bible. And Pete Enns, Greg Boyd, these are two guys who do that. Um, so Pete Enns, I also think is, is I just think he's a really misleading source for people. I've, you know, I got his, his, his book, was listening to it, was checking it out in my preparation for dealing with progressive Christianity stuff. And I just, there's so many issues there. I would be deeply concerned with anybody who is learning to think about the Bible from Pete Enns. And um, what's interesting is the crowd, his, I, I imagine if you're a Pete Enns follower, that crowd is hearing me say this and they think, oh, Mike's scared. Mike's scared of Pete Enns. I knew it. Mike's, Mike's scared of him. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, no. <laughs> So, I mean, in the sense that I'm uh, scared for you, if you're thinking that he's giving you the real lowdown on scripture to understand it well, I don't think so. I think there's all manner of confusion that's going on there and it's misleading. So I would be very concerned. So what do you do? You said, how do I share my concerns? I think you have to give really specific examples. In my experience, people who like someone like uh, Dr. Enns or say Greg Boyd, they, they love these guys. Like, keep that in mind. They love them. They feel indebted to them. They feel like they've helped them understand God better and reconcile tough issues. And in some ways, they're right. In some of the issues they've dealt with, Greg Boyd, Penis have really helped them work through them and understand them better. But in some ways, they're wrong. But when you talk about Pete Enns, you're like, he's a problem. All they hear is, you. it's like you're making fun of their mom. That's, that's, that's how this sounds. So this is why what you'll need to do is bring up exact quotes that very clearly show the problems that you're worried about. 
And then you don't overreact. You don't say everything they say is bad or wrong. You say, hey, they are teaching some things that I think are hurting people and aren't true about God and about the Bible. And so you have to get exact quotes and you show the exact quotes. So your, your, your job would be then to listen to the podcast and pull audio and then play it for people and listen to the, 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 the things and get the actual quotes. Because in my experience, if you don't share quotes, if you summarize their views, people who like them will think you're wrong even though you're not because they don't read everything these guys write and they just know the stuff they've read they've really enjoyed and they think you're just making that up so um those are a couple things that i would consider um hit them as softly as you can hey um you know for people who love these guys say pedans as softly as you can hey i i i think there are some concerns i'd like to bring to your attention is that okay instead of he's a false teacher right you you just you need to meet him where they're at I don't want to discount the benefit he's brought into their life, but some of that benefit might be mixed with, I don't know, like some very unha- un- unhelpful things. <laughs> so there's there's my counsel for you. Um, here's an anonymous question. It says, hey, Mike, I love what you do, bro. Can you help a brother out on what you do if your wife says she will never be a biblical wife for her husband? She's a believer. Um, you, uh, I'm going to say, I, I really mean these words. You love her self-sacrificially, nourish her, cherish her you bless her and you do it especially when she says i'm never going to be a biblical wife for you because the way i view it while there is a calling and depends on obviously you your version of biblical wife and my version of biblical wife might not be the same thing here but let's set that aside for a minute the calling on women the way it's worded it's always to women it's never to men and the calling on men is always to men and never to women what i'm saying is it is not a husband's responsibility to make his wife submit or yield. This is, I'll say it again, it is not a husband's responsibility to make his wife submit. It is a wife's calling to submit to her husband in appropriate ways, in godly ways and with limits, right? But it is her calling to do that. It is not the husband's calling to make her do that. The husband's called to love herself sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to cherish her and nourish her. These are the words in Ephesians 5. Husbands are never called to make their wives submit because that's not part of our job. So if I have a wife that will not submit, then guess what? She just won't. And I continue going on serving the Lord in my marriage. And it means I can't, we can't do some things. Maybe I want to lead us down this road, but it's not going to happen because we're divided on these issues. And you lovingly, graciously serve. And you still try to lead to the best of your ability, but you don't, um, you're not, you're not forcing things because forced submission that's that's abuse that's where abuse comes in so i do think that uh, you know and we'll talk more about this as i do my women in ministry study over the next several weeks um, but i do think there's a call for a woman to submit to her husband right with with reasonable limits but when a husband forces submission when he tries to make it happen using manipulation using um uh, nagging and using whatever else this becomes unhealthy and abusive in a relationship and so yeah, it's different with kids. So like a husband is never told, haven't you, you have to have your wife in subjection. He's never told that. He is told he has to have his kids in subjection because children, you have to make them submit. That's part of, you know, in a godly way, not not beating them, right? But but you, you need to make your kids obey you. You force them to obey you with children, little kids, right? As they grow older, you pull, you pull that off more and more. Um, but never is this said about a woman. So so that's why my answer to you is, what do I do about my wife is you do nothing. You do everything about you. You, you yield, you serve God, you love her that much more 
when she hurts you, when she mistreats you, when she wounds you. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And that is perhaps why God uses that analogy to describe your role as a husband. Number 12. Let's look at number 12 here. Jill Burton says, Hi, Mike. Do you think that churches should bring back gospel crusades? As I was saved in at one in the 70s, these days no one wants to preach the gospel, but rather to uh, do community works. Hmm. Well, there's nothing wrong with doing community works, um, unless you think that that is the gospel. <laughs> oh, well, I preached the gospel. I helped pick up trash, so therefore I have preached the gospel today. No, you didn't preach the gospel. You did good work. It was good. Um, but it, one doesn't replace the other. Um, gospel crusades, uh, I don't think we have a mandate as a Christian that we're supposed to do or not do a gospel crusade. I, I would look at it in a pragmatic value. Can I get people there? Can I get them to show up at the event? Does the event have a, a, a significant and lasting impact in the lives of the people who come? These are the two questions I would ask. And um, yeah, I mean, most of the early church preaching was just um, apostles, evangelists, and uh, you know, when it came to public scenarios, they would just go out into any place that was considered a public forum and they would just preach. So Paul goes into the marketplace in the book of Acts. But marketplaces in Greco-Roman times, it was common at the time, this is such an interesting historical insight, for people to go and debate and do speeches and stuff like that in the marketplaces. So they would go to what's called the cardia, the heart of the city, this marketplace, and then they would just start proclaiming things. So Paul would go out into the marketplaces and he would proclaim Christ. Uh, he also would go to the synagogues. The synagogue was another gathering, a local gathering. And as a rabbi, he could go there and he could say, hey, I want to talk about the Messiah. And so he was always welcomed in synagogues to speak until they kicked him out. So he looked he looked around and he found whatever gatherings were already happening and he went there and he preached the gospel. In addition, he went to the Areopagus, which was like a, in Acts 18, I think, or is it 19, um, where there's like this open forum where debate and philosophy discussions would happen. And there he preached Christ. So what I see in the New Testament as my example is them finding forums and places where people already are and preaching there. Now, on top of this, we have this special thing where Jesus would go and he would heal people and it would draw a crowd and then he would preach to the crowd. And the disciples did this on occasion as well. Um, and uh, said, I don't have some healing gift that's going on in my ministry. But what I have done and what I would recommend you consider doing and people consider doing is using on the online world to reach a crowd. We are Right now, we have 1,400 people currently watching this video. I get to point you guys to the gospel of Christ. Uh, Non-believers are watching my content all the time. The online world is the open forum of our current world in a lot of ways. Not the only open forum, but it's probably the one with the greatest potential. So I think that where we do crusades, as they become more difficult to put on because you're just having a harder time doing the event and getting people to show up, what you can do is you can look for other things to do. This is one reason why I started doing online ministry so much, is I just thought the potential for reaching people is so huge. It's so huge. Um, and, and, you know, after, what, seven or eight years of weekly content, you know, it's, it's working. It just takes, you know, a, 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 the investment of your life. That's all. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'd recommend looking at those things. So should churches bring back gospel crusades only if they can do it successfully? If not, they should consider doing other things. I do think though, to add one thing to this, there's one major issue with, with evangelism in the church in general. And that is that, um, we leave it to the leaders to do all the evangelism sometimes. And so we, uh, we stopped telling our coworkers a long time ago, we stopped telling our family members a long time ago. We, we stopped, not like we have to just 
like a robot, say the same thing every time we see somebody, but, but we just stopped even trying. That's a problem. Um, I think that, I think that what we need in our, in my, okay, the culture I'm familiar with, I think what we, we need is Christians who are, um, driven to tell other people about the gospel of Christ, even if it's going to be uncomfortable or might cause troubles or might cause problems. And they're doing it in a way that's meant to be compassionate, fearless, and uh, biblical. So that that's a big issue that's going on there. But as far as like big events and stuff like that, yeah, that's my thoughts. Number 13, Hot Holy Humorist says, some say the biblical prohibition against premarital sex no longer applies since marriage then was so different. How is marriage different then and how should it impact our view of sex now? Um, well, I'll just put it this way. Um, if people back then, right, cr say Christians in the first century, like the apostle Peter or maybe Jesus, if they heard someone say, hey, in a, in a, in a few thousand years, in 2000 years, we're going to be looking at marriage really differently than you. So is it okay if we have sex outside of marriage? <laughs> they would have got a talking to, I think. Um, the biblical Christian sexual ethic is that marriage, the marriage bed is undefiled, what Hebrews says. And so that marriage is um, the proper context for, for sexual relations. And there it's delightful and wonderful and encouraged and actually wrong to withhold each other from each other for, for bad reasons. Obviously there's medical problems some people have, there's, there's uh, distance issues people have. Um, so I, I think that the, the question, if I can guess at what you're getting at with your question here, hot, holy humorous, is that, um, uh, that people redefine marriage to include same-sex unions. Um, they're trying to embrace now po polyamorous or polygamous uh, open marriage, all that kind of stuff. And what I'm gonna suggest here is um, it doesn't matter how our culture defines marriage. You're, if, if you're a Christian or if you're simply a human who listens to, to God in some way, then you recognize that those are just not marriage. They, the, the, the redefining doesn't work, right? So what we have is it's as though, think of marriage as like an authentic $100 bill. And there's a bunch of counterfeit $100 bills that have brought, been brought into circulation. And so now people are paying with real and fake counterfeit bills. And so you're thinking, maybe, counter, maybe the real bill doesn't even matter because there's just the counterfeits there as well. And I think that's actually not true. The real bill matters that much more. As a Christian, I need to double down on the Christian sexual ethic, right? And that includes the idea that premarital sex is prohibited, that, <clears throat> that sacredness in sex is in marriage that this is a commitment. Um, so marriage minimally, it seems to require two people, husband and wife, male, female, and that they're committed to each other, that full commitment to each other so that the two become one, right? Man, husband leaves his father and mother, joins his wife. This is a, a, a lasting commitment. Um, whatever our culture does to bring counterfeits into the scenario, it doesn't matter. That's still what God instituted. So yeah, I, I think it's irrelevant. Um, let me read your question again out loud so people can hear it again. Some say the biblical prohibition against premarital sex no longer applies since marriage then was so different. And that statement is <clears throat> um, uh, monumentally dumb like to say that. Well, you know, the whole idea of Jesus being the only way, I don't think that applies anymore because religion back then was so different. 
the idea of believing what the apostles wrote and taking that like it's God's word, I mean, reading and literacy is so different now, right? It, it's nonsense. It's like utter nonsense to say it. Um, yeah, for those of you who, who are struggling with this, <clears throat> there's a, a biblical, I got in trouble on Twitter for this. <coughs> Just yesterday, actually. And um, <clears throat> getting called all sorts of horrible names, like names, I, I, things I won't retweet <laughs> or, or, or hold pictures of because it's so, they're so profane. But <clears throat> some of which I, I did share with you guys on Facebook and stuff. Um, and you guys can follow me on Twitter and Facebook if you're interested. You don't need to. Um, but what I got in trouble for was saying that consent is not enough for to make sex sacred. Like <clears throat> uh, consent itself, while it's necessary, you know, you violate consent, that's rape. That's always wrong. But consent, while it's necessary, is not enough to make sacredness in a relationship of intimacy. And so you, so for sex to be sacred, sex itself is sacred, it needs to be in proper contexts that include not only consent, but also marital commitment. And <clears throat> I think that um, uh, I was then accused of being a rapist and some other things. Um, this consent sexual ethic of just consent is the only ethic involved. It is so horribly ungodly, but it's also so close to the heart of our culture that people freak out and rage for you to suggest that it's not true. That's why all the more we have to say it. When Jesus did confront things in his culture, he always confronted exactly the areas that they were confused on, exactly the stuff they got the most wrong. He like would deliberately uh, uh, you know, confront it. Hey, let me talk about your phylacteries that you guys care so much about. Let me talk to you about the Sabbath rules that you guys are obsessing on. You're wrong about this. You're wrong about that. Jesus would take exactly the hot button issue and he would bring clarity and truth. I think that we're actually supposed to do this when we're preaching repentance to people because it's those very issues where they have to repent. Our culture and the people in it have got to repent of their total sexual depravity. Pornography, homosexuality, the transgenderism, which is connected to sexual depravity, it's more complicated. Um, all those things, because <clears throat> that's about confusion, right? Injection of roles. It's not explicitly about sex, although it sometimes becomes that. Um, all this stuff, we have to turn away from this, whether it's the confusion of transgenderism or the distortions of proper good sacredness of sex in polyamory and premarital sex and homosexuality. All this stuff, I got to say, hey, yeah, you repent of that and turn to God. And the world hates this. And it will eventually get me canceled, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Vega says, Hi, Mike. First Corinthians 36 through 38 seems, I'm not sure what chapter you were referring to there. Uh, seems like Paul is saying someone can marry their own daughter. Oh, okay. Chapter 7, probably. Uh, the translation translations usually say fiancé, but when I looked at the Greek, the word used means virgin daughter. Um, yeah. Okay, so... This is this is complicated. Um, it's definitely not saying that. Um, so it, it, clear indications in the New Testament uh, that incest is considered wrong. It's definitely not about a man marrying his daughter. But there is debate because in the Greek, these words can be used in different ways. And so <clears throat> here the ESV says, right, if, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, right, that he's he's passionate, he he's, he desires her. Let them marry. It's not a sin. His betrothed, that word, and you can see there's a footnote here in the ESV. It is the Greek word for virgin. That Greek word for virgin, it's also in verses 37 and 38. So that word virgin, it doesn't necessarily mean his 
wife, his betrothed, his wife. It could also mean his daughter. And there's just some ambiguity in the text. It's a little difficult to translate, in other words. So translations have gone two different ways. And let's see here. I think New King James has it. Um, yeah, has it as if it was the father, right? So they try to translate it that way. If anyone thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, and they seem to interpret this as his daughter, if she's past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let them, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Maybe actually the New King James decided to try to keep the ambiguity. It's not clear whether it's the father letting them marry or if it's the uh, the, the the man who's deciding he'll marry the woman he's betrothed to. So what I'm just going to say is there's ambiguity in the text and the word virgin could refer to your virgin daughter. Here's the NASB, his virgin daughter. Or it could refer to his betrothed. She's a virgin, she's not married, right? Because premarital sex, they understood was wrong. So she's called a virgin to refer to her being unmarried. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I'm just saying that it's, it's ambiguous in the text and there's a challenge there, which means that we should tread a little lightly on our conclusions we have in the passage. The The interesting thing though is overall, 1 Corinthians 7 verses 36 through 38, what it does say here is that in principle, we can apply it really easily without confusion. Marriage is, is good, but those who withhold themselves from marriage because they have control over themselves, they have self-control and they decide to serve God with their time and not spend it you know, building family and all the responsibilities that come with marriage, that that is, that is okay as well. They're both good options for us. Christians, you can be single or married. You can make a choice there. But making sure you're behaving in self-control and not just being a single person who's inflamed with lust um, all the time, that is also important. Um, 15. <clears throat> Jeff Weed says... Mike, love you and your ministry. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. Um, recently watched your Calvinism series and you didn't address John 6, verses 28 through 29, where Jesus called beliefs work. I don't think it defeats Romans 3.27. What do you think? Okay, well, let me start with Romans 3.27, just so people can get that context. Um, this is a verse that I've used to say, hey, um, you... Um, works are, are seen in opposition to faith. So faith is not a work because faith is the opposite of works in, in the teaching of Paul. Now I explained this in great detail in a video that every day somebody misunderstands. So I'm sorry if I didn't explain it well enough, but it's in my video on Calvinism. I'll link it down below um, my, my video on Calvinism, which is about why I think Calvinism is unbiblical. This is one reason. And I, I think that this is a solid reason. I think that they treat faith as if it's a work. No, they don't say faith is a work. They don't say faith is a work. Calvinists, I'm saying you don't say faith is a work. You treat faith as if it were a work in a rather complicated way that I think undermines Calvinism when we realize what's going on. So um, <clears throat> the idea is that works and faith are contrary to one another. If something is of faith, it's not from works. Uh, 328 says this, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the one response to this, then, to catch everyone up to the same page that uh, Jeff is on, is John 6, 28, where Jesus may be suggesting that faith is a work. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So is he saying that faith is a work? I mean, this is the work of God that you believe in him we sent. And I think here it's it's just comes down to one verse. And the, the, the idea is this. For those who want to say faith is a work, I mean, because Jesus says it's the work of God, I think that they're misunderstanding Jesus' irony here. 
Jesus, the irony here is you don't do something you believe. The work that God requires, the thing God needs you to do is just believing. It's not a labor. It's not an, something you exert. It's not something that comes from some goodness within you. Rather, you trust in me. That's the point. Um, I think it's irony. Jesus often speaks with uh, different levels of irony or hyperbole. It's common in Christ's language. Um, so this is the work of God, irony, that you believe on him whom he sent. Let me back up and give you a little more context here. Um, Jesus says, truly I say to you, um, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Right? They want food. He, he, he multiplied the bread and then they followed him and they're like, hey, uh, make more bread for us, Jesus, make more bread. And he's like ripping on them because he goes, look, you, you don't really see that this is just a sign pointing to who I am as Messiah. Instead, you just want me to take care of you. You just want food handouts and you don't want the bread of life. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes. Oh, they were, they were working to try to get, they were, they were trying to get him to give him food, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him, the father has set his seal. Then they go, okay, well, what is the work we have to do uh, that God requires for us to have eternal life? Oh yeah, well, the work is you believe. I, I see this as irony. And then I think Paul comes in in multiple places in the, in the New Testament and he clearly shows us that faith is not a work. I will, I will link my video down below that demonstrates this. I, I just see that Jesus is using irony here. Um, I, I think it seems very obvious. Sorry for those who don't see it as obvious as I do. I'm not insulting you. I'm, I'm just saying why I'm not going to continue explaining because I think, isn't that obvious? Um, okay, Sandra Crowley says, can you explain why Christians shouldn't be affiliated with Freemasonry? I have family members who are Freemasons and believe you can be a Christian and be a member of a Masonic Lodge. Yikes. Okay, I don't really know that much about this issue. Let me give you uh, my, my tentative opinion as, as of now. And I, I haven't looked into Freemason stuff that much. I've only heard rumors. And what I, what I would consider what I've heard, uh, I would consider them being rumors because I haven't dug into it deeply. And these might just be the kinds of conspiratorial things you hear about secret societies that may not be accurate. So I, I just want to be careful that I don't overstep my own knowledge on an issue, um, which I'm sure I do even when I try not to. And sometimes, um, so the only Freemason who I know who was, who was really involved and really passionate about it. He was like, it's just a social club. We just do good works. And I'm convinced that that guy was like completely genuine. He was like, yeah, we're just doing good things. People are like, you can't be a Mason. You can't be part of this. Um, and he was like, oh, we just do like social stuff. We, we just, we just try to help the community. That's it. I think on his level, that's what it was. I think it was just that. And probably for a lot of people who are involved in it, it probably is that. This is my impression from people I've heard. It's just social thing. They just, they just, I just, we just help people. That's it. But it is a type of secret society. And it does seem that as you move up in the degrees, you get more information and you get more background and you get privileged knowledge that other people don't have. And so it's at least possible that a lot of the people who are helping down here aren't aware of some real issues up here. That's entirely possible. That, that fits with the kind of society that Freemasons seem like they are. So I'm open to the idea that there's serious issues there, but I wouldn't discount a Christian who's involved in it on a lower level. And they're like, oh yeah, I'm fine with it. But I haven't done the research to confirm or deny those things. But I will say this, it's, it's, it's worth at least looking into 
And I wouldn't join the Masonic Lodge or be part of it unless I had first done some real homework on it. And um, I know it would probably be a great video that would get a lot of views if I did work on that. It just hasn't been a priority for me. Um, and I don't, I don't do videos based on how many views they get. <laughs> so um, it's like the only YouTuber <laughs> who does that. Um, all right, we'll go to number 17. Uh, Rachel CG says, hi, Mike. What are your thoughts on conditional immortality? Um, I generally think <clears throat> that it's false. But I think that it has more credibility than I used to think it had. Um, I haven't fully vetted it, but I will fully vet it in the future. But this is way in the future. Guys, like two years from now maybe, I'm going to do a study on the topic of hell, looking at conditional immortality. And um, this book by Edward Fudge, The Fire That Consumes. This is like the guy who pushed the idea of conditional uh, immortality. And their basic view, for those who don't know, is, and you can be a Christian and hold this view. You, real Christians can hold this view, okay? It's, I know Jehovah's Witnesses hold a view like this, but it's, it doesn't make you Jehovah's Witness or heretic-like when it comes to the... It's not apostasy when it comes to the gospel to hold this view. I don't currently agree with it. But the idea is that Adam and Eve were never going to be immortal until they ate of the tree. This is my understanding, short version. Um, and so mankind is in a state where they're not going to be immortal. We're not, we don't have spirits that will live forever. And so only those in Christ will at, who become born again will actually have eternal life. And that the condemnation and all the statements in the Bible about hell and suffering, when it talks about the eternity of that suffering, it's not um, the suffering that's eternal. It's the results of it that are eternal. The results of the punishment are you're, you're dead forever. So that's kind of how they view things. That's a super brief overview. Um, but I just want to like let you understand what the view is. That's why they call it conditional immortality. Some people call it annihilationism. And um, it's not universalism. It's, it's that. Um, I still lean against it for a few different reasons. But I'm going to do a thorough, thorough thing on this in a couple years. You just have to wait a couple years. Or you could do your own work on stuff. Uh, but that's, that's all I've got for you at the moment. Um, I have heard several arguments from the conditional mortality people and some of them I'm like well that's actually a pretty strong point but others that are important haven't pulled me over and so I, I think their views incorrect at the moment Mr. Tumnus 32 says do you believe the current Oxford definition of meek slash meekness is biblically correct it's and here's the definition being quiet gentle and submissive but I've heard it's being powerful under control. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I've heard of meekness as power under control. Um, and I don't lean towards that definition myself. Here's what we're going to do. Um, let's go to Matthew 5.5. 5. And we're going to look up the word uh, together. We're going to look up the Greek word translated meek in uh, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth at least it is in um, some translations let's see there we go so blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth this word meek right here in the Greek is praeus pros praia uh, praia and Prow. I'll make this bigger for you. 
Let me read to you a Greek definition of the word, since we're actually interested in what the Bible authors were saying, if that's the virtuous thing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, here's the basic definition. It pertains to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Gentle, humble, considerate, meek. In the older, in the older favorable sense. Describes ruler, the ruler of Syracuse to his citizens, apparently the rank and file. Um, I'm scanning. There's a lot of text. You guys can you guys can sort of read it on your screen there if you want to read the whole thing. So this is uh, BDAG, which is a New Testament uh, lexicon, a Greek lexicon for the New Testament, considered very reliable. But it's also obviously a little difficult to read if you're not familiar with reading this kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, there's not really much else we're going to get from this definition that I'm going to read for you guys anyways. But yeah, it pertains to not being overly impressed with a sense of one's own self-importance, gentle, humble, considerate, meek. I, I think that's a nice definition. We could look at, say, another, another lexicon, the LSJ, which says an awful lot of things about it. Do you guys enjoy this randomly looking through these things? Normally I'd look through the lexicon, pull out the parts that I thought were most relevant, and I'd share them. Um, but we're doing this live. So here it's referred to as mild, soft, or gentle. Mild, soft, or gentle. And it's referred to of things, of persons, of actions, like feelings. Um, so yeah, meekness, what I'm going to suggest is the definition power under control. The problem here is um, I think we're importing the word power into the word meek. Does meeks, does, when I say you're meek, does that mean you're powerful but under control? I don't mind saying under control, but then under control itself does also seem a little bit different than what we're getting at with these definitions of meek. Mild, gentle, meek. Meekness here seems to be about like gentleness. That's actually how some translations translate the word meek is gentle. You're gentle. There's like a, a, an unnecessary softness to you. That's not weakness, but it's that other thing, meekness. That's how I would view it. Um, now, you, you mentioned the definition that you found um, online for the Oxford definition, current Oxford definition. Now, Oxford definition is going to go with how is the word currently being used in English today, not what was the meaning of the word in Greek in the New Testament times, which is what I care more about. They say it means being quiet, gentle, and submissive. So I would say quiet is not necessarily part of meekness in the Greek for New Testament sense, but it could be because it, you might be quiet because you're being gentle in, in a good way. Um, submissive, not no, not necessarily, for a leader can also be meek, and they're not, they're not submitting to people when they do it. Um, so I would say gentleness is there. <clears throat> it may refer sometimes to, it may include being submissive in a very, a, a very different scenario, in specific scenarios where you're being submissive because you're just being, you know, I'm just not going to push back. Like James says, wisdom that is from above is willing to yield. No, I'm not going to push on that. I'm going to just yield to that. That can be meekness as well. Yeah, but our culture considers pride to be a positive thing. And so meekness doesn't have a positive side to it. It's generally seen in a negative way, negative light. That's where our culture, our culture is just wrong, which is maybe why Jesus says blessed are the meek instead of blessed are the proud. What does the Bible ever say blessed are the proud? And it says he's far from the proud. He's near the humble. Number 19, Radical 1, 1912 says, <clears throat> was there significance in the exact manner Jesus died or was it just circumstantial because of the cultural 
culture slash location slash era in which he lived, are there other ways Jesus could have been killed? Would the gospel be unchanged if perhaps Jesus was thrown off a mountain by the Pharisees or thrown in the Colosseum or something? Um, so those hypotheticals are a little tough to deal with, Radical One. I'm going to suggest that um, it might, my best guess is if Jesus was going to die in a different way, then a lot of our Old Testament would actually be written differently as well. So I think that there is significance in the manner in which Jesus died. I'll throw out a few examples, but what I'd recommend is that you look up um, my uh, Psalm 22 video where I talk about this in detail. Um, so <clears throat> one example is that there's specific prophecy about the manner in which this, the Messiah would die in, say, Psalm 22, that that death would be um, uh, public, that it would be as if he was guilty, but he wasn't really guilty, and he was actually Isaiah 53, dying for the sins of other people. That was going to be an execution that was by like government order. That actually is important. And that ties into the fact that God is officially placing Jesus there and he's volunteering to be the one who officially dies for our sins, takes the punishment for our sins. So I think those elements are important. The tree element's interesting. The cross is made of wood. They would call it a tree. Even he hung on a tree. This is because it. they use that phrase in the New Testament because it harkens back to the Old Testament where it says that anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. And this is symbolism that Jesus has taken our curse on the tree. Jesus has a crown of thorns on his head. In Christ, he has a crown of thorns. Well, part of the curse that Adam experienced was that there would be thorns and thistles that would come because of their sin. Jesus is in a sense bearing the curse on creation that Adam, that was there because of Adam and his sin. Jesus' side is pierced and blood and water flows out. Um, God took Eve from Adam's side. That's interesting, right? And we're the bride of Christ. The, the first husband and bride is Adam and Eve. Jesus is the new Adam and, and Eve, in this sense, is the church born from him, right? That, that he, he died. He was put into a deep sleep, almost as though dead, right? And then we were take, uh, Eve was taken from his side. So Jesus was killed and then his body was pierced and he poured out his blood for us, um, all these things are really interesting elements. The, the piercing of his hands and feet that that's alluded to in Psalm twenty-two. Um, the uh, uh, the fact that his disciples fled him, that he was the only one truly faithful, because Christ is the only one who's fully obeyed and done the right thing, so that he could live the perfect life and be the perfect offering for us, so that we could look to him to be our savior, because we failed. Like there, there's other elements we could look at too. There was darkness over the land. I think it, showing God's judgment, right? Showing the 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 that this is judgment over sin. But then there was when the light comes up on 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 Easter Sunday, Christ is risen from the grave. He's buried in the tomb to show that he's he's gone into death for us. He's risen from the day, dead to show his victory over death. Like a lot of these things, I think have a lot of symbolism attached to them. So it's difficult to hypothesize how they'd be different. You know, like, what if it was this way? What if it was that way? Um, I'd rather spend my time just noticing the symbolism that is there, the beautiful and interesting and, and, and amazing symbolism that we actually do see in the crucifixion of Christ. And it's not even, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's the timing of Christ's death, that here he is being rejected by the leaders of Jerusalem at the same time as the sacrificial lamb is being chosen by the, by the people that will be their offering for Passover, right? This is, the, this is the Jesus who John said, that's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's being chosen to be the one that they will, they will crucify. And then he, there he is. He gets, he gets uh, paraded before the people and he's crucified right around the same time as the Passover lamb is offered. And he is our Passover, scripture says, right? And uh, there's so many different elements. It's, it's beautiful.
and amazing. So, yeah. Question 20. Elena S. says, in regards to the scripture, let us make man in our image. In what ways are we made in the image of God? Oh, Elena, this is like something I still wonder about. I'll share some thoughts with you that might stir up your thinking here. Um, but often we approach the topic like we're trying to find one way we're made in the image of God. You said ways with an S there. You were like, hey, there's more than one. Um, and so people say, okay, well, maybe it's maybe it's our intellect, right? It's our intellect that 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 is the way in which we're made in the image of God. We, we have the power of reason. This is what people said more several hundred years ago. They were like, yeah, it's a, the power of reason. Mankind has a capacity of reason that's far above that of animals. This is a way in which we're in the image of God. Um, a challenge to that, though, is angels also seem to have pretty high capacity for reason. They seem to, right? So I wonder if capacity of reason is being made in the image of God. Um, someone else would say, well, it's our, it's not even a, a way that's part of our bodies. Um, it's not like our physical design or something like that. That's something the ancient Jew would have rejected. Certainly Moses would have rejected the idea that we were made in God's physical image. Um, but, but some say, no, it's just a position we have. Like we're God's, uh, like say Michael Heiser likes to use the term, we're God's imagers on earth. Image is a task. It's an occupation you have. And so you're told to subdue the earth. And so you, like God's in control of all things, you here. You come like his imagers having authority and dominion on the earth. And so that's the sense in which you're in God's image. Um, I don't lean that way. Um, but that doesn't mean there's nothing there of value. What if we take all the elements and we put them together? Is that the image of God? Maybe it's my intellect being of a certain degree. And it's the fact that I represent God here on the earth. Like I'm not God on the earth. But I mean, I uh, maybe represent is, is a strange word to sound to strange sounding word to people here, but I'm standing here with my dominion over the earth as you are with yours. And that comes from God. And that's maybe connected to us being in the image of God. It's right there in Genesis one. Let's make man in our image and let them have dominion over the earth. So maybe there's an element that's there, um, but maybe there's also other elements. It has to do with us having soul and spirit. What are those? What are soul and spirit? Um, define that, that's difficult. There's also a, a relational connection. There's, and this is different than angels. Humans can have a spiritual relationship with God that angels don't have. They can be in the presence of God, right? But God's presence can be in me. That's different. I can actually have God in me. That's next level. This is definitely a bigger deal than what the angels have being in the presence of God. And so, and this will be elevated as we move towards, we move towards our future and glorious eternal experience. So there could be a sense in which the design of mankind was made compatible with God's spirit so that we would later be filled with God. Not become God, but be filled with God, relationally be so close to him. So maybe that being made in the image of God is connected to that. I, I kind of lean that way at the moment. But I sort of am okay with the image of God representing several different elements and not exactly knowing where I draw the lines. So, Elena, I hope that that was helpful, you guys. Um, I am really pushing to prepare in time for this Monday to do the next Women in Ministry study. That uh, is is tons and tons of stuff and data that I'm trying to push through. I want to prepare it and bring it out to you guys and share it with you, and I want to try to make it as clear as possible. I may have to split this next one into two videos because of the quantity of the content. Um, but uh, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. I hope it's been a blessing to you, this Women in Ministry study. I'm only, as I do it, I'm only more convinced how needful it is 
Um, I heard today uh, Sean McDowell had a couple guys on, uh, one of whom I'm actually quoting, I think maybe both in my series, and they were one's egalitarian, one's complementarian. They were kind of going back and forth. And as I'm watching the video and I'm imagining myself, if I didn't, if I hadn't done all my whole research project, I feel as though I would watch this exchange and only be more confused. And that's why I'm doing this project because it's going to go so deep on the topics, so in depth on each issue, that for those who want to know with clarity what they think, what their opinions are, they'll say, hey, I, I don't just know the topics of the debate. I think I understand the, the, the details and I've been able to come to some conclusions. So hope it's a blessing to y'all and I'm happy to be able to bring it to you. And I guess that's it. I don't think I have anything else to say. <laughs> so Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and remember that you are already, if you're a Christian, you're already close to Christ. And he loves you. And he calls you to serve self-sacrificially, to live in this world but, but, but not of it. That is all. <laughs>